All right, Dr. Doak, I have a critical question for you. Very critical. I think it is. How and when did you know you were saved? Oh, my. Oh, wow. You mean like saved by Jesus? Yeah. Wow, wow, wow. (laughs) Well, I grew up in a tradition, more or less. I grew up in and out of some different churches, but when I was a very young child, I grew up in a church that was very... um, very into the idea, some students may be familiar with it, some may not, that you would like, cut. there would be a sermon and maybe at the end of the sermon, there would be a call, like mm-hmm. there would be this thing. Mm-hmm. I actually haven't heard this in a lot of churches recently, but it used to be really popular. Like when I was a kid, like you would preach a sermon and then at the end of the sermon, you would say, hey, maybe somebody out there That's right. has been feeling a tug at your heart. And you know, how about, how about everybody, just, just everyone bow your head, close your eyes. And it'd be like, if you felt a special tug in your heart, like maybe, you know, you've never actually... You know, you've never actually made that decision in your life to become a Christian, you know, like, and then you would raise your hand, like with your eyes closed. And then they'd be like, if you have your hand raised, why don't you now just stand up? And if you're standing up, just come, come forward, come forward. Uh, And you'd come forward and you'd Uh, like pray. Or maybe it would be done much more informally, like in a Sunday school class with Mm -hmm. kids and you would Mm -hmm. pray a prayer. And I think that I did things like that several times. Um, For me, long story short, I began coming to church as an adult uh, on my own like initiative after a period of not being in church at all for like years when I was a freshman in college. Mm. And I considered that if I had to like nail down a moment, I consider that to be a moment that made a lot of sense to me mm-hmm. as like, you know, um, a moment where my life actually changed, but there's a lot that goes into that. Right. That's what, a, what about true, you? What true. about, what about you? Well, like you, I was raised in a tradition that did, um, that practiced what they call altar calls. Mm-hmm. And we'll get to this next semester students, but that is, um, that, that comes from, um, a, a tradition that goes far back in, in American Christianity, really to before the founding of the United States, this, this kind of, um, church service where you call, like a preacher will call out mm-hmm. to the people and they'll do some, some formula of, you know, Rec- it, it, it's something that's aimed at people who are conscious enough to make a decision right. uh, for for Jesus, and then um, you you make that decision and you respond in some kind of way. And I always thought that it was really interesting that there were like stages, like depending on what kind of church you you went to. Like some of them go go full with it, where it's like you have to come down to the front, right? Yeah, like just you, get you up. Got, you get up in front you of forward. everyone. If you can't do it here, you're not going to do it in front of the exactly. world. Exactly. Yep. But then some are like like um, kind of. I don't know, ultra polite about it. They're like, you can just, everyone, everyone eyes closed. <laughs> like, so apparently you don't need to make it public, which is interesting. But then like, you just don't even have to like, you just look at me. That's it. Right. You know, like, just and I know. Give me a signal. Yeah, it's like yeah. a secret between us. Like. Yeah. Like an auction or something. Um, But yeah, so I grew up in that kind of tradition. And my mom says that she remembers praying with me, what they call the sinner's prayer, where mm-hmm. you say, you know, I, I acknowledge that I'm mm-hmm. sinful that I want Jesus to come into my heart mm-hmm. when I was like three years old. Oh wow! But I of course I don't remember that at all. I mean, yeah. maybe some people remember that experience in their lives, and I and so I, I would say that I don't remember. Hmm. Um, you know, when I started yeah. becoming um a, a Christian, and when I would think of myself as being saved. Yeah. Welcome, students, to the Need to Know More podcast. This week, our word is Savior. We're talking about Jesus the Savior. Jesus saves. That's a phrase you can live by. But what does it yes. actually mean, um, Jesus saves? We dive back in. I think, in some ways, we're doing 
in some ways the title's Christ from last week and then Savior this week. It's, it was just kind of, it's a way that we could kind of do two weeks on Jesus. It feels like you can't just do Jesus in one week. He's right? kind of important. He's kind of a big deal. Yes. Uh, so <laughs> this is kind of like a part two, or you could think of it like a continuation. We talked a lot about the book of Mark um, last time in yes. Dr. Payne's wonderful lecture, Christ on the book of Mark. We focused on that and we focused on Mark because it was short. You can read the whole thing and get like a good core of what we call the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, just by reading Mark. That's exactly And then Matthew and Luke, you could think of it you could think of it on historical terms like they elaborate on mark's message somehow in their own way and then john is like totally different so in this week's savior i tried to do kind of like a part two which is like a bigger overview of just like why are there four gospels and then also getting a little bit more into like luke for example and matthew with the sermon on the mount and then the book of john one of the things that i really liked about your lecture dr doke is that you introduced students to some of the um, hu the huge cast of characters that are involved mm. in telling the story of Jesus mm. and um, how different books provide different figures. Like they mm. think that it's really important for you to know this person right. if you're going to know Jesus right. or this group or this movement or really this story and so much of it. Mm -hmm. And it's not just because you're a Hebrew Bible slash Old Testament professor. So much of it includes Old Testament figures, mm -hmm. which I thought, I hope that the the students enjoyed learning about. So you all have been investing for many weeks. And for those of you who haven't read the Bible before, it might just seem like a dizzying amount of people. <laughs> right. For Christians, Jesus is the one who brings all those folks together. So mm -hmm. Abraham, mm -hmm. um, Jacob, Israel, Moses. Moses. We have folks that are mentioned maybe not necessarily by name but Bathsheba <laughs> gets mentioned in the genealogy of Matthew so we talked a little bit about her like um let's see here David like David King David we talked about like David's a, a big one how does Israel like getting mm. a good king I yep. mean there's just tons of folks Elijah Elisha Elijah Elisha and all the history of Israel you talked a lot about just the 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 story of the the people of Israel in exile, of them coming out of exile, rebuilding right. the temple, right. and then bam, Jesus. Right. Well, and and I, I think too, I, I felt bad in the lecture because I, I felt like I was really racing through this idea of like this this political and historical and religious background of Jesus' Judaism, like the Judaism mm -hmm. of the f first couple of centuries BC leading up to Jesus. And then Jesus was probably born around the year six or four BC. People have typically calculated and maybe died around the year 30 AD. But in the decades leading up to Jesus' birth and the decades after his death, like just the Judaism of his day was in total turmoil, um, all as a kind of aftermath, you could say, to the story of the Old Testament. And that's there's not a big blank there. I mean, we know a fair amount about that history. It's in a lot of the so-called apocryphal books like First and Second Maccabees. You can read a lot about this, this story of Antiochus and the desecrating of the temple and the Maccabees around the year 165 BC. And thus Israel's hope that there would be some kind of like messianic savior leader figure who would come in and like kick the bad guys out, whether it's the Babylonians, whether it's the Assyrians, whether it's the Egyptians, you know, I guess they're not really kicking the Egyptians out, but the, the people, the, the empires Delivering that came in, yeah, 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 who came in. And so that was the Greeks really leading up. And then during Jesus' time is the Romans. You got to kick yes. the Romans out. And so when you have these messianic figures that, that come up, it's like an extension of Israel's big story. It's, it's struggle with the Babylons of the world and so on. Now there were a lot of different, takes on how to be a faithful Jew living in mm. a Roman occupied mm -hmm. Judea. Mm -hmm. um, and Jesus was interacting with a lot of those folks yes. at that time. Yes. I, I really enjoy reading 
like his encounters with these different people, Pharisees, Sadducees, oh, yeah. zealots. Yeah, that's right. And the the John, the John the Baptist group, which some people associate yeah. with a, a group like the Essenes or something similar to it, which is like a kind of a, a desert dwelling, like radical group, like the Dead Sea like Scroll group or Essenes. probably Essenes. When you, okay, let's give a quick rundown. Yeah, I, yeah. I think here's a fun question to ask. I want to ask you, mm-hmm. which of these groups would you have been a part of do you think if you were living during jesus time but i think we have to explain the groups a little bit so that it makes sense the pharisees the sadducees the zealots or the essenes yeah okay so now the pharisees um those folks historians typically identify and and they identify themselves with um the synagogue right Mm -hmm. so like these these groups uh um the pharisees are people who are uh, very interested in interpreting the law. Mm-hmm. One of my um, college professors called them the college professors of the ancient world. Right. Um, because they were highly educated. <laughs> um, might be kind of like another good comparison might be a lawyer, you know, someone right. who is interested in the correct interpretation mm-hmm. and application of the law. Um, the Sadducees are typically associated with the temple. So like the the priestly um cast of of folks in the ancient world Mm -hmm. and because they're associated with the temple that means they're also associated with government and so they might be more likely to be in contact with their roman governors and we see that come up um, Mm -hmm. a couple times sadducees were a a pretty conservative group too in terms of scripture like they saw only the their canon remember that word canon their canon was just Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Torah only, nothing else. Whereas Pharisees believed in a more expanded canon that would have included other writings too. And it's important to note that the Fadge- the Pharisees, Sar- the oh man, Pharisees, and Sadducees <laughs> do not get along um, for no, the most part in in the the right. first century. Um, and then there's a group, the Zealots, Ooh. who they're kind of like the revolutionaries of the ancient world, yeah. right? They're they're um, like the, the folks, characters in Hamilton. Yeah, man, they want to throw <laughs> off uh, their Roman oppressors, yep. and um, I I don't know. I think that's kind of an exciting. There's Jesus Christ Superstar, like I've mentioned it before. One of my all time only favorite. about two hundred times you've mentioned Jesus. Yeah, Christ yeah, Christ I love Superstar. it. I love it. There's a character Simon the Zealot, um, but anyway, uh, and also present in the scriptures. But um, yeah, so what their answer to um, this you know, problem of how to live faithfully in the first century would have been like throw off your, our oppressors. Right. Yeah. And then you mentioned the Essenes Mm -hmm. um, and they're kind of like, do you feel an affinity with that crew because they're more associated with Hebrew Bible stuff or am I just, Oh no, I I don't know that I feel an affinity with them necessarily. I just think it's, so you'd think of them as like a group, like almost like a monastic group that would flee to the desert and just say all this kind of stuff. We're not a part of this, but they, I, I think the dead, like the Essenes who were the Dead Sea Scroll community, they actually thought that they were hanging out there. They were doing prayer. They were studying the Bible. They were doing their community. They were like living community the way they thought it really should be lived. Mm-hmm. They thought that the Jerusalem temple group was c- totally corrupt mm. and they were waiting for an apocalyptic battle in which they thought they would be fighting side by side, hip to hip, cheek and jowl with angels to basically defeat Romans. So this is an apocalyptic. Awesome. Group. Awesome. So. <laughs> Okay, so having that, these yeah. were maybe not the only four groups, but scholars who talk about this period tend to think of like Jewish society and its religious mm-hmm. factions in terms of these groups. Do you have, is there a group that you think you would have gravitated toward and been a part of? I've given this a lot of thought uh. and 100%. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, really? What is it? Um, I And I'm going to say in the students, you may, you may have a weird reaction to this, but I'm going to go with the Pharisees. Oh, tell yeah, me why. Yeah, well, um, the Pharisees, 
And, and the reason why maybe some students might be a little um, alarmed by that is because a lot of times Pharisees get used as code in in like sermons mm-hmm. to mean like bad people. Bad. And they usually associate that with like overly a ton of interpretations of the law, mm-hmm. legalism. Well, and Jesus is usually arguing with the Pharisees yeah. and Sadducees yeah. about things. But one of the things, the reasons why I feel an affinity toward them is because they do actually really love the scripture. Mm-hmm. They love the scripture. They love the law. Mm-hmm. And they, when it comes to um, it, like trying to figure out the right relationship to the world, mm-hmm. they go right for the scripture, but mostly it's because they're like the intellectual class. Yeah, they're the professors of the They are, world. they're the professors. You have, to be, you have to be one. And I remember, and now I'm not a specialist in the ancient world, but one of my favorite professors, a New Testament professor that I studied under in school, said that um, the Pharisees, there was some room for like class diversity within them. So like oh, you really? could be poor mm-hmm. um, and be a talented student and be a part of the Pharisaical right. like class, which is oh. not always possible. Like most people in the ancient world were utterly abjectly poor. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and so I, you know, I'm, I'm a working class gal, like entering college and having the kind of education that I had. There's not a lot of people in my family. So I feel a special affinity and they're the people that Jesus wanted to talk with the most. Now, true, they clash. But uh-huh. they also like the fact that they're in conversation with one another means they actually share a lot. Like Jesus isn't necessarily right. talking with the Essenes. You know? No, I mean, he's no, that's exactly right. And I think that's a case to be made for the Pharisees. I mean, you know, the Gospels have very particular purposes, too. It's not to give you like a perfect sociological explanation of every single group and right, person that right. lived. Right. So I think we can expect that these groups had identities and people that were as diverse and complex as, as groups today. And, and you could imagine. And so, um, yeah, the, the fact that Jesus is engaging with them, I think is not always a negative thing. He does, he is antagonistic and he does have like a different view or at least to the ones that there's another thing you pointed out, I think correctly, historically that the Pharisees and Sadducees were actually kind of like totally opposed to each other. But in the gospels, they're just grouped together, like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Right. So there's a place where it's like, you're not getting like all of the most complex historical and social information the gospels have a beginning and an end there's a limited amount of space there okay so they're telling a story and they're doing it in a particular way well in the pharisaical tradition which the the like modern rabbis today will tie themselves back to this this Mm -hmm. first century group Mm -hmm. there's a long history that goes into that Mm -hmm. but they have this really rich tradition of arguing with each other right and just and like and, and and so I kind of like that idea, like, but these people are getting to argue with the son of God. What a privilege oh, for that. I love that so. view. Yeah. Like if you read early Jewish writings, like if you read the Mishnah or the, the Talmud, the broader kind of category, you will read like debates between the rabbis. Like that's what it is. It's really fun it's and interesting. Con- it's a contested, a contested um, faith. What con- about you? Oh, what would I be? Well, yeah. Okay. Because I don't want to just copy what you said. <laughs> I mean, it's clear that I would be a Pharisee, but I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to pick a second place. Okay. Okay. That I think, and it's like, I could see. I could actually see myself in any of the groups in a way. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I'm going to pick the Essenes though. Really? I could see myself cool. getting like total like purity. Like, uh, I'm just sick of it all. I'm going to go live with like people who are doing it the right way. And well, we're going to have our like own com- mountain climb. It, my, yes. Yeah. Just going to some mountains, some rugged territory. They're kind of out there, you know, but they were also doing scholarly things too. Like they had their own writings. True. They had sectarian writings out there among their scrolls and they were also preserving the Bible. Hallelujah for the preservation of scripture because they give us our oldest copies of the Old Testament, this group, as they dwelt out there in the desert. Um, And so 
I um, love that. Yeah, I, love I could. That. I could see. I could see it. Yeah. I could. I could see. Um. I could see what it. What I could see myself. I could see vibing. you. Yeah. I could. <laughs> yeah. Them. Now that you mention it, I'm like, actually, that might be your number one. Like, you know how they do personality test quizzes? We should make one of those. Like, what? Oh, do you, what would you be in the first century? That would actually be um, <laughs> a super hilarious. You answer a bunch of questions and <laughs> then you get like, I'm a Pharisee. I'm a Sadducee. I'm a Zealot. Can you? Can you just? I think you can actually make quizzes on BuzzFeed of your own. Like they allow yeah, that. Yeah. Should we? Um, I know for sure I would not be a Sadducee. Yeah, I think the Sadducee thing, I could maybe see myself being a Sadducee in the sense that there's a kind of like official, like, well, we are the representatives of the official thing. And I could see myself like wanting to be a part of that. Well, I just, I was just not born into like a life of, of like that kind of yeah. political position. Well, no, That's I, the reason why I'm like, yeah, I just, it wouldn't be av- available to yeah. me. I said, <laughs> what I, I'm I said I could see myself wanting to be oh, a part okay, of Oh, okay. Yeah. I, could, <laughs> I might want to be I that would, too. I would enjoy the status of for a high sure, class. Um, for sure. Religious leader or so on. Okay. Yeah. That'd be great. Okay. I like it. Okay. Well, that was fun. Yeah. Um, so. <laughs> go for it. No, no, no. No, you. Um, no, you. So one of the things that, um, you know, Jesus, as he's interacting with these folks and through the course of his his ministry, um, this identity of savior, mm-hmm. I, I think that all of the gospels in their own way are seeking to present Jesus as a savior. Yes. Um, and they pick up on different, not necessarily contradictory, usually complementary um, things about who he is. Right. Now that might seem a little bit, um, maybe that might feel a little bit uncomfortable for you all as students um, to think that each of the gospels has a different part of Jesus's savior identity. But I I actually think that makes sense to me because Mm -hmm. if we think that he is the divine savior of the world and like Mm -hmm. this cosmic hero, Mm -hmm. we can expect him to be too big for one book from my perspective. Oh, totally. I think that's the right way to view just the canonical choice. The fact that we have four gospels, that there's not just one that we're encouraged to think of Jesus' story in terms of four. And I presume that God and God's wisdom and the Holy Spirit, they could have inspired a single gospel or had, in fact, there, there were, there was an attempt. Um, it was called, it was by this guy named Tatian um, who lived in the first couple of centuries of early Christianity. And he called it the diatessaron, which means a thing woven through, I think multiple parts or something like that. It's like a cooking term, like a Roman cooking term, diatessaron. And I like that. that was an option. In fact, the diatessaron was an important um, source of like reading stories about Jesus in certain early Syriac churches for, for centuries. And it was a real option. But instead, um, Christians chose the four Gospels, particularly four, not the idea of one. And, and, and even though there are four, that excludes some accounts of Jesus, too. Some accounts that may have been floating around during Jesus' lifetime or even during the time of the... Uh, of the of the gospels that did make the canon and so we get like some diversity but not an unlimited amount it's kind of like an amount that shows us all these angles i really like it well one thing that all of the the gospels that are contained in the canon Mm -hmm. they all share is this that there's a central moment that gives us this savior this jesus as savior the crucifixion and the resurrection oh yes now depending on what kind of version of the Christian tradition you're familiar with, you might think of that as having a different one meaning or another, or many, many, maybe many meanings. Mm-hmm. You teach Bible classes mm-hmm. all the time. Um, and I, I mean, one question that I have for you as a biblical scholar is would Jews or really anyone in Jesus's lifetime expected what would they have expected an event like the resurrection oh. for Jesus 
as savior or for 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 anyone for that oh, matter. Yeah, that's a really that's a fantastic question. And I think it's the right question to ask because it's like I think as Christian readers, we just assume like, oh yeah, the resurrection, like they were all like waiting for the Messiah to be resurrected. Like I think in a sense it would have been surprising mm. the idea of a resurrection, although it's not without precedent. Like um so for instance, we could look back at the Old Testament and when you read the Old Testament as as we know as students in this journey, we know you've read at least big parts of it. Have you been a little surprised, students, to notice that the Old Testament actually doesn't have a lot to say about the afterlife? Mm. There's like very little mm-hmm. there. Like, I think, I mean, this is the way I think of it. Maybe this is a simplistic way, but I'm like, let's take the book of Proverbs. I don't know. It's a book about right and wrong and why do things and why not do things. If the authors of the book of Proverbs knew about an afterlife, why didn't they ever bring it up? Like when they right, say something like, oh, the way of the lazy is blocked with thorns, but the path of the upright is 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 a highway, Proverbs 15, 19. Like, if they if they thought there was an afterlife or a reward with that, why not just say it? Why not just say the way of the righteous will be rewarded by the Lord with heaven and you know so on. But there's no statement like that anywhere um, in the Torah. Um, there's no reference, no clear reference to life after death that a normal reader might notice. Although, in fact, Jesus actually has a way of interpreting something from the Torah um, to mean that there is an afterlife. But it's like an interpretive move. You have to make. You do get references to a shadowy place, Sheol in Hebrew, which means like a pit or in the ground. But it seems to just be a metaphor for being dead or like a place where all the dead go. And you can even find places like in the Psalms and elsewhere that seem to suggest you can even like, you know, that death is really final. I'm thinking of like Psalm 6 uh, and Isaiah 38. You get like almost like explicit denials that the dead have any relationship to God. So dying is like being cut off from God. And the very idea of resurrection would be like, no, you're not cut off. You're coming back, you know, in that way. So, however, having said that, I want to turn the corner here and say, I don't think that's the whole story, though. Um, there are th- there are places where authors do speak about a life after death. Like we do get characters, you know, we get a reference like in the book of Genesis, like when one of the ancestors dies, the text will say that they were gathered to his people. Mm-hmm. Like, well, what does that mean? Like in burial or is there some sense there? Um, there's a ghost story in 1 Samuel 28 with Saul. That's and right. The, I like that. So story. there's that. But there are some explicit references like um, to pick maybe one of the most famous ones that that maybe would mean something to you in terms of the New Testament. It's a little cryptic, but like um, Hosea chapter six, um, the chapter starts. The prophet there says, come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us that we may live in his presence. And it's like, now that's very cryptic. I don't know that you could just read that and be like, ha, see, the Old Testament predicts a third day resurrection. But it's like, there's a sense there of like a three-day scheme of like, yeah, you could die, but also God can revive you. And the book of Daniel, actually, chapter 12, the book of Daniel ends with an explicit reference to resurrection, that those who are wise will shine and 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 there will be righteous people, but others will will be resurrected to everlasting shame and contempt. Uh, and the end of the book of, of Isaiah actually Isaiah actually has an image like this too. So I think there are like different models, but I think it would be a little surprising. We do have some evidence that we can't talk about now because it would just take too long. But we do know that there were some, there are at least hints in early Jewish writings before or around the time of Jesus that maybe some Jews did expect a messianic figure to rise from the dead based on that Hosea passage. But it's not like really clear. Well, and we know that the idea of resurrection was something, the resurrection of the dead was something that, our folks, the Pharisees, for example, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> believed in. They did. Um, so this idea of resurrection 
um, like not not all first century Jews would have believed in that, right. but certainly some did that mm-hmm. that your body would be right. your physical body would literally be revived. Right. That that existed in the first century, but what does it mean? So what does it mean that know, right? the <laughs> savior of the world is put to death yeah. in a particularly painful and gruesome way oh. by um this this yeah over lord governing body the, the roman empire and then what does it mean that he's raised from the dead oh okay let's go back to to, to your book to mark from last week yes like, mark. and in the passage we read in this in the um as our focus passage we were reading mark chapter eight right and we were talking we were we were there was the thing where Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You know that passage? Yes. Now, Jesus there, he does actually tell his disciples that he must die. And he predicts his resurrection after three days. He doesn't say, though, why he has to die. And he doesn't explain what it would mean for him to come to life again. In fact, at the end of the book of Mark, there is actually no explicitly narrated resurrection. Weirdly enough, too, go to the book of Matthew, dear students, and read the resurrection narrative. It's extremely short. It's like one paragraph. It's like barely anything. And so actually the Gospels themselves are a little more cryptic than I think as Christians we sometimes might think because a lot of the elaboration on the meaning of this comes in different places in the New Testament and actually much, much more comes in the history of Christian theology. Oh, students, mm-hmm. next semester, it's going to be very excited. It's about going to be that. serious. Oh, it's going to be a big deal. So, but I think, I think it's worth it. I don't know, Dr. Payne, if you think that this is too, too sparse or scarce of me to put it this way, but it's like, I think we should just dwell on the Gospels for a minute and just like not rush ahead to all of those explanations, even the very good ones that our church has given all that. And just focus on like, wow, the Gospels themselves are actually kind of cryptic on this. Like Jesus says in Mark 8, and I think we read this, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me in the gospel will save it. That's Mark 8, 34 and 35. So there it's like there's a mystical thing. You have a real life which you could save actually by losing this physical life. So just like in Mark, seeing is never just about like physical seeing. Your life is not just about living and breathing and eating, right? But it's about sacrificial suffering. So there's so there's at least that hint in Mark, okay? Luke, there's all kinds of like political plot lines and like, you know, it suggests that Jesus's death was very complex, uh, maybe even tragic. Um, and maybe that would have um, appealed to Luke's cultured Gentile, that is non-Jew audience, a sense of like pathos and, and injustice with the world in which they lived and so on. But for, for Luke, just like Mark, Jesus' death is more than just meets the eye. But he doesn't do anything after his death in Mark. In Matthew, he does barely anything. Um, in the Last Supper meal, which is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he does say when he pours out um, you know, the wine from the cup, like in Mark, he says, this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many. Okay, like that must mean something. And he tells the disciples he'll drink it again with them later in, in this new kingdom that we've been talking about um, in this lecture too it's this week. So now there, now there's something. Jesus dies and his blood is poured out kind of like a sacrifice in the Old Testament. Like when you think about animals dying and having their blood spilled on an altar, like Jesus is that sacrifice. In fact, in Matthew, very explicitly, Matthew 26, this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins in particular. So I think that that's one of the key images for what that actually means. Now, you could go on and on and elaborate lots of things, but I would say don't miss that one. This idea that Jesus' death and blood and the pouring out is, is related to the Passover, Exodus 12, and related to this idea of a sacrifice. 
Yeah. So there are, as you mentioned, there are many different meanings and interpretations of his death and resurrection. Mm-hmm. It the the New Testament itself kicks us kicks that conversation off and we're still talking about it now Mm -hmm. um so we will talk a lot about this students (laughs) (laughs) in fact it it will be a major topic moving forward but i like your idea of savoring the moment Mm -hmm. in the scriptures themselves Mm -hmm. and also savoring I, i mean one of the things about jesus that it's easy to when you when you get caught up in thinking about and this is a worthy thing to think about the meaning of his death and resurrection you can forget in some ways that he was a, a human being, a man right. who had friends, mm-hmm. who whose friends were very sad mm-hmm. um, when he died, mm-hmm. um, who was betrayed by one of his friends, yes. um, Judas Iscariot, who was denied by one of his friends, right. um, Peter, and then whose friends were in deep mourning and sorrow um, when he died, and mm-hmm. then who really struggled with... Um, what it meant that he was raised from the dead and what they were supposed to do with all of that and how they were even supposed to encounter him. So I'm just imagining like this, you know, you, you leave your friends and family and your job and everything, you know, to follow this one man. Mm -hmm. What does that say about his charisma? That's just a fascinating whole other thing. And then he dies. Oh, he leaves you and not only that he starts talking about it even before he goes at that i would have a whole other you know thing with that oh right and then um in a really pretty quick turnover he's back he's back (laughs) whoa how would you respond Uh, i think we should hover on that for a little bit um do you want to read okay so i'm married to a guy named thomas so i have kind of a thing for the the passage the famous doubting thomas passage from the gospel of john John chapter 20 i think that passage actually would take us through the drama that you've that you've described and into some of the aftermath so it would give us a sense of how the gospels talk about jesus's death but really the resurrection so at this point okay in the story this is in the gospel of john jesus has already died and a couple of days have now gone by and they're in that period of like total sadness, mm-hmm, darkness of mm-hmm. just like failure. Right. And so this is, this is the passage where, where, where the resurrection is really going to happen in John. Let's, uh, let's read it. Do you want to start or should sure. I start? On the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Then Peter and the other disciple set out and went toward the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent down to look in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen wrappings lying there. And the cloth that had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled into a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. 
As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Supposing him to be a gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabbunai, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not hold on to me, because I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and she told them that he had said these things to her. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hands and put it in my side. Do uh, do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. Ooh, what a a passage. This passage is so beautiful. You can't get more Jesus than this passage. Yes. I mean, there are other passages too, but this one's pretty good. (laughs) You know, I I love love the, um, you can see, and, and I've heard people say this, the style, mm-hmm. um, that there's a lot of love here in this mm. book between Jesus and his followers. Mm. There's a talk about Jesus, the disciple mm-hmm. um, that I mean, John, the disciple that Jesus loved. Right. And you can clearly see that Mary, lo- Mary Magdalene loves Jesus, that Thomas, I think, in his own way does, too. Um, and that these people are really struggling with the concept of the resurrection. They've got the death down, right? Mm -hmm. You can Mm -hmm. see them in mourning, but they're not exactly sure what it means and how to interact with Jesus. Right. Well, and and, and how would they? It's like at first when Mary even sees Jesus at the tomb, she doesn't even know that it's him. And there's this weirdness. There's a sense like that Jesus has his body and he is himself. But the recognition of Jesus isn't just a physical recognition after the resurrection. And that's actually true in Luke as well. Um, You get this sense like, Jesus has some other kind of presence, some other kind of body, something like the resurrection body that he has is not just not just his good old self or or that maybe he's like hidden until a certain time or for some reason. It's very mysterious to me. You know, one of the things that we've talked about is the idea of name calling. And mm-hmm. I don't mean name calling like, 
you know, you're a bad word name, yeah, yeah. but I mean like the role that names play, right. like we, we've talked about, um, Hagar and how she gives God a name. And mm-hmm. I think that there's just that beautiful moment when Jesus calls Mary by her name Yes, and then she recognizes yes. who he is. What a powerful moment. Oh. Well, and she becomes here then the first, she is in a sense, the first, she's the first, not in a sense, she's just like literally the first person to see the risen Jesus. She's the first one to tell the gospel message, the good news that Jesus resurrected in the entire world. And some Christian apologists will say that that is one of the major proofs of the resurrection, right? That the early church would preserve the word of a woman. Mm -hmm. It seems like if you were going to court in the ancient world, Mm -hmm. you wouldn't take um, Mary Magdalene as like your first witness. Yeah. You might be like, Oh, it was Peter. He was or John, (laughs) like someone of the hero disciples. But the idea that this woman, um, is the very first preacher of, of the, the complete gospel here, Mm -hmm. like that Jesus has died, that he was, he is risen. Um, and I love that proclamation. I have seen the Lord. Mm -hmm. Um, that is like the, uh, some some apologists or some uh, Christian scholars will say that's actually proof of the resurrection in and of itself because it almost seems ridiculous right. that they would preserve that story right. if it didn't actually happen. Well, right. And and actually the story, I thought while we were reading in the beginning of the chapter, it almost made the disciples look kind of dumb because they're like racing each other, like jockeying for position. Like, it, mm-hmm. I don't know what to make of the fact that like there it was almost this awkward language about who reached the tomb first, but then this other person ran ahead, but then this other person did. And then they, they saw and believed, but they didn't understand. And then they left. But then she's the one who actually then looks further into the tomb. Yes. There's a beautiful model there you could even think for just like study in the Christian journey, which is like a lot of what we do in our study and in the Christian journey. It does. It is about like jockeying for position or trying to look a certain way Mm -hmm. or maybe getting like, you know, just like. You know, I I mean, I definitely I'm not making fun of any of you students because I did this when I was a college student, which is like you just kind of like read enough or listen enough to just barely get by. Like, what do I need to do to get by and get my Mm -hmm. grade and get out of here? But it's like Mary's pattern is like she goes down into the tomb. Mm -hmm. She not only goes there, not only does what she has to do, but she's like lingering around. She's doing something more, almost like Moses back in the book of Exodus, where he sees a burning bush and he's like, hmm. I need to go look at this bush, why it is burning. And he's like, and then God speaks to him after that. It's almost like after a second effort that God comes and speaks. I think that she, I mean, to me, Mary Magdalene, you could read this little passage as a metaphor for the Christian life. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, As like this idea that in the dark you search for for Jesus, Mm -hmm. that you're not satisfied Mm -hmm. by um, this by what you see um, mm-hmm. at first. Mm-hmm. So I think that, you know, I mean, I, I want to say that for Roman Catholics, she is a patron saint of, of um, conversion. Oh, really? I think that's right. Yeah. Anyway, Look but yeah, I think she's, later, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think that she is a great model for what it means to embrace yeah. the Christian life and yeah. then to preach. Right? Totally. To, we can't leave this passage without saying a no. word about Thomas, the doubting Thomas. Doubting okay, Thomas. fair is is his reputation as a quote doubting Thomas in a negative sense. Is that fair or unfair in your view based on this passage? Well, from my perspective, I think it's it's both and, mm. right? I mean, you know, it's really interesting because Jesus in the in the New Testament is not afraid to scold people. No, he's a, he's professional, a scolder. professional scolder. He's a scolder, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. So I think it's very noteworthy that he does not scold. Um, right. Thomas, like he, you don't get any of the get behind me, Satan rhetoric, right? right nope. From this. Right. I mean, he does admonish, like, don't doubt, but believe. And he seems to anticipate the idea 
that things are going to, it's going to take a little while after his resurrection for things to kind of come to like the fruition, like the final plan of God um, that we'll get to when we talk about revelation, because Mm -hmm. he says, you know, blessed are, are those who have not seen and yet come to believe, but it's noteworthy that he does not give him a hard time about it. That phrase you read there, blessed are those who have not seen is one of actually my favorite verses in the Bible. Oh, wonderful. Because in my own life, this is just me, my own personal spiritual journey, little vulnerability corner here with Brian. <laughs> it's the vulnerability um, corner. It's the vulnerability corner. It's a new feature on the pod. <laughs> um, I, you know, I, I think to me in my life, like belief is, is hard. Like mm-hmm. I feel like it's something I have to fight for. I have a lot of doubts, you know, in my life. Like I, I just, and to think that Jesus here is recognizing that like, oh, if you can see Jesus, if you could be there, if you could put your hands in the crucifixion spots, that's one thing but he's like recognizing that there would be people who would be doing this and it's like it would be it might even be hard you know and there's like a Mm -hmm. special blessing in our in our totally secular scientific rational age where like belief in this kind of stuff it doesn't come simply to all of us to some of you belief is just like breathing it's like you've kind of had it since childhood and you just don't you know and 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 you'll have your moments you know but it's not and then for other people it's like you really have to kind of like claw your way through granite you know to kind of do it and i feel like in some ways I do sort of claw my way through granite in belief, um, sometimes in a bad way and sometimes in a good way. And just to imagine Jesus here, like acknowledging that there's mm-hmm. like that there are people who would have to believe but yet didn't get to see. I find that comforting. Well, I think one of the the best moments of my life as a Christian, and I can't even say that I can trace it back to a particular moment, was realizing that struggle and doubt mm. are not only not necessarily a bad thing, but mm-hmm. it's there's a tremendous amount of good to be achieved in in terms of the Christian life. Like the Christian journey is for strugglers, for doubters, for people who have, um, uh, for people for whom it doesn't come easy. In fact, many of the greats, you know, we'll get to this in the the next semester, but Mm -hmm. many of the theological greats that we will talk about, Mm -hmm. um, some of them, their entire lives, every moment of being a Christian, was a serious struggle and they were plagued with doubts and yet the person of Christ was present with them yeah. and made real to them in different ways. So to me Thomas is such a comfort. Oh. I think too just a quick throwback to another place where so Thomas's doubt or his doubt or whatever you want to call it his questioning of Jesus actually leads to important moments in Jesus's ministry in John. There's another moment much mm-hmm. earlier in the book in chapter 11 when Jesus raises someone from the dead a guy named Lazarus. And the disciples are trying to persuade Jesus, you know, to do certain things and not like the disciples say to Jesus, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he'll be all right. But Jesus had been speaking about death and they thought he was referring merely to sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. For your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Thomas, who was called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Which is kind of like a very sardonic, almost funny thing to say. Like, yeah, he's just like, let's die. Like, this is ridiculous. And that then leads to Jesus, in fact, raising Lazarus from the dead and, in fact, um, proclaiming some of his most like astounding things in the book up to that point. Jesus saying, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? So here, his, his request to see the wounds ends in Thomas, in fact, saying, my Lord and my God which is like, that's the biggest thing you can say about Jesus. That's the proclamation. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God. That's the Trinity. That's the proclamation. And so Thomas's doubt, however you assess it, it leads to the most profound statement possible. 
I think for me, one of the takeaways is, and I hope it's for you students, if you're a doubter, if you're a struggler, um, there is a place for you in the Christian tradition and there is precedent for you becoming an extraordinary witness to the glory of God. Mm-hmm.